Good morning. We're going to read from 1 John chapter 1 this morning. Before we get there, I wondered if you had a question. You sang that song about the name Jehovah, and you get to all the different names. The first one, Jehovah Nisi, is probably a new Hebrew name for many people, but it comes from Exodus chapter 17, when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and you have families, you have thousands of families, and they get attacked by the Amalekite tribe. And God defended them, and, and God allowed them to, to rise up and to fight off this tribe. And so Moses set up an altar and had a, a sacrifice that they offered praises to God, and he named that altar Jehovah Nisi as the, the place where they remembered that God fights our battles. Maybe you're fighting a battle of some sort this morning. It could be a different kind. Uh, uh, it might be a health battle. It might be something that's going on at work. It, it, it might be something internal that you're feeling. But you need to know something this morning. We don't just sing songs for the sake of singing them. But often God works through those praises. And our God is the God who fights our battles for us and wins them. We love families around here, right? It's all okay. First John chapter 1. Uh, excuse me, this is chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. That's my mistake on your notes. First John chapter 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Pray with me for a minute. Father God, we come here to lift up your name in praise and to recognize together that we need to stop at least once a week, and gather together and recognize that you are that power, that force, that being who is greater than all of us. And you are greater than all the troubles that we face in this world. And so together we acknowledge that we need your help and your guidance and your wisdom, and we recognize and we praise you for your awesome power and strength and wisdom. Thank you for being not only a powerful God, but for being a personal God. Because from the opening pages of the Bible, we discover that you are revealing yourself to people. You've done that in the past. Many of those stories and many of those words are recorded in the pages of the Bible. You've done that most clearly in your son, Jesus. And you still reveal yourself to people today. We need those whispers of direction we need those nudges where you move us into action and you get us out of our chairs. We need those corrective thoughts that come when you tell us that we're headed down the wrong path and we need to move in a different direction. We thank you for being the God who fights our battles and who gives us strength. We thank you for allowing us to lean on you and to bring you our problems and our troubles and for ask for your strength and for your wisdom. We not only pray for ourselves, we pray for those friends of ours who are going through great trials. 
We thank this morning again of Tom and Jean and Chris and Ginny, and there are others too, but they come to my mind, and we ask that you would continue to grant each one strength and hope, and that you would bring energy from within, and that you would meet us in the midst of the difficulty. Thank you for promising that you are the God of all comfort, and that you will comfort us in our times of sorrow and trouble and loss and, and physical difficulty. And you will not only comfort us, but you do it in such a way that you equip us to be ready to offer that same comfort to somebody else when they go through similar trials. So thank you for using every challenge and every difficulty we go through. And thank you for drawing us closer and closer in reliance upon you, closer to knowing that you are the God who cares very much. You are the God who suffers with us in this world. And you are the God who ultimately triumphs over all of the difficulties that we face. So we hand over to you every obstacle that we're facing, every physical trial, every need that we have. And Lord, we ask that you would meet us in the place of our deepest felt needs and that we would experience your power, your strength, your comfort, your wisdom, so that at the end of our days, when we're, we are united with you in the kingdom of heaven, that we will all overcome by the grace of God. Now guide us as we look into your word again and we discover more about your love. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The concept of overcoming is a repeated theme throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And the word that the New Testament Greek uses for overcoming means to conquer, prevail, triumph, or to overcome. For anyone to be an overcomer presumes the presence of some kind of conflict, some kind of battle, war, or contest in the human struggle of daily life. And so the Bible assumes, rather than having only peaceful days, that you and I live in a world where there is struggle, where there are battles that we face, where there are conflicts that we go through. The Bible also presents a number of stories of people who were overcomers. So think through if you're familiar with some of the Old Testament stories and some of the New Testament characters. Joseph was an overcomer who triumphed over the evil intentions of his brothers, over years of wrongful imprisonment, and over a tremendous experience of separation and loss. He's the one who, at the end of all of that, is able to say that he knew that God's hand was in all of this and that God had even sent him to that place in order to save the lives of his brothers and all their families. He says, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. David overcame the physical height and strength of Goliath, the homicidal rage of King Saul, and spent years on the run, all to succeed Saul as king over all Israel. Yet even David failed to overcome his own lusts and his willingness to lie to cover up and protect himself. Ruth and Naomi overcame racial bias and age discrimination on the pathway to becoming legacy builders in Israel and unexpected contributors to the line of Jesus. Mary Magdalene overcame being possessed by seven demons until she was healed and freed of their control by the authoritative word of Jesus. 
She went on to travel with Jesus and the disciples to become the first to see the risen Jesus and the first to proclaim the news of the resurrection to the disciples of Jesus who were still in hiding. The Apostle Paul overcame floggings, being stoned and left for dead, a shipwreck, an overnight jailing, and at least two extended prison stays in Philippi, Caesarea, and then in Rome. When Sue and I were in Rome earlier this summer, we visited the Mamertine prison where Peter and Paul were each held shortly before each of them died at the hands of Caesar. Peter overcame a brutal night of denying that he even knew Jesus three times while Jesus was going through his most difficult hours. With the final of these denials taking place within earshot of Jesus himself, who turned when he heard Peter's words and looked straight at him. And then the rooster crowed. Yet, Peter was forgiven by Jesus personally and restored by him, going on to boldly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus on the streets of Jerusalem, to fearlessly stand up to the intimidation tactics of the Sanhedrin, and ultimately taking the gospel all the way to Rome. All of these stories, and more like them, turn the Bible into a story of overcomers and overcoming faith. So when the Apostle John writes about a love and faith that overcomes the world, that should capture our attention. It did mine when I was studying this concept of love a few months ago, and I thought I need to come back here to 1 John chapter 5 and unpack a little bit what does it mean when we talk about faith and love in the context of becoming overcomers. And so our topic today is love that overcomes. This is part eight in our All About Love series. In this summer of love, we're learning that Jesus' love has a life-transforming impact that often surprises us, and it changes us from the inside out. So let me say good morning to all of you who are here in the house this morning. Good morning, North River, and my warmest welcome to all of you who are watching online from, from home, from a hotel, wherever you're traveling. We are glad that you are with us today. And I'm glad that you found our live stream and that you are making this a part of your pattern. If you are newer to North River, whether you're here with us today or you're watching from home, uh, let us know how you found us. How has your journey with North River begun? And, and did somebody invite you? Did you go on a search through the internet and, and you found your way to us? Tell us about that. We'd love to hear about that. And I hope that you will take the next step, whatever it is that God leads you to, in your journey to deeper faith and deeper growth in Jesus Christ. Most Sundays, we build the message around a question. And so the question that rose as I was studying this passage is, what is the love that overcomes? And so that ties into our theme this morning. We're going to talk about three discoveries we make about love that overcomes. Here's the first one. It is inseparably rooted in belief that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 1 in First John, John chapter 5, John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This chapter starts off with an interesting and important proposition. John says, everyone who believes. It's a phrase designed to include everyone who meets the condition that is set forth at that point. And by nature, that also means that it excludes everyone who does not meet this condition or who is not willing to and who tries to force their way in by some other pathway or doorway. John uses this kind of proposition to identify the real thing and to expose 
false paths or imposters. So he uses it a number of times in this letter. First John chapter 4, verses 2, it says, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. He uses the same pattern again a little bit later in that chapter, verses 7 and 8, 1 John 4. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. In using this kind of proposition, and John does it a number of times through this letter, John is trying to offer us a measure of assurance of faith while at the same time guarding against false spirituality. Guess what? We live in a world today where both of those things matter. There are all kinds of false spiritualities that are out there, and yet the Bible continually calls us to the central faith that was held by the apostles and disciples of Jesus that has been handed down from generation to generation. That's what we are after. What is the real thing? What is the faith that ignited those earliest bands of Christians who saw Jesus and knew him personally? Here's the impact of this kind of statement. How do you know that you are truly born of God? In other words, that you belong in God's family and that you had a spiritual rebirth experience. The first thing you do is look at the object of your faith, and it should be Jesus. It's not about the quality of our faith or the depth of our faith, as if faith just stands alone. It's faith in Jesus that the apostles are pointing us to. If you believe and trust, that's the same concept in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in. If you believe and trust that Jesus is the Christ, you are born of God, so says John. John is not calling us to have just any old faith. Faith's value is based on its object. And the object of a Christian's faith is Jesus, the Son of God. You don't need to have a sign in the sky or some deeply emotional experience to have this reality take place in your life. If you really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you are born of God. You are part of God's family. There's something new that is going on inside of you spiritually. That's the test. We didn't make this up. The Apostle John tells us right here. You don't need to have a sign in the sky. If you really believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are born of God. Here's the second discovery. This love that overcomes is inseparably tied to love for God and for his children. What's the backdrop of that? Well, we find it in verses 2 and 3 in the same chapter. John writes, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. So, do we get to choose between loving God and loving other Christians? Not according to John the Apostle. Here he writes that we know our love for other Christians is legitimate in two ways. First is by loving God. The second is the more and more that we are keeping his commands. That automatically ties forever two things together, loving God and loving people. They go hand in hand. Imagine the person who says, I love God. I just don't want anything to do with other Christians. I don't like them. I don't want to be around them. But I really, really love God. John, who walked with Jesus, the last of the living apostles, writes, if you love God, you will love his people. And if you love his people, you are loving God. They are directly tied together. 
This is one reason why every true follower of Jesus Christ needs to be connected to other Christians. That we're not just isolated spiritual beings out there doing our own thing. Usually the link for this is that entity that we call the church. Loving God is so inseparably tied to loving Jesus. Loving God is so inseparably tied to loving other Christians. Imagine the person who says, of course I love God. I, I just don't love Christians. They're, they're impossible people. They, they all fail. They all mess up. John is saying there's no wiggle room for these two statements to be true at the same time. Turn it into another vein. Suppose you're saying to your friend, I really care about you and I want this friendship to grow deeper. I want it to last. But I just can't stand your wife. I just can't stand your husband. I, I want to have time with you, but not with your spouse. How far would that friendship go? Not very. I've got news for you. If you told me that you care about me, but you want nothing to do with my wife, you would probably not find yourself among my closest friends. I would probably not find a lot of time to spend with you. Because you don't care about my priorities. You don't care about the people that I care about most. If you never, ever asked about my kids and how they're doing and, and what is their welfare like, I would probably count you among my more distant friends rather than my closer friends. If you care about me, you care about the people I love. Here's the point. If we care about God, we care about the people that are on God's heart. And we begin to be shaped like God. Third discovery. This love that overcomes is inseparably rooted in the belief that Jesus is the Christ. It is inseparably tied to love for God and his children. And third, it flows from a new perspective about God's commands. Verses 3 through 5. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. Does that sound unusual to you? But this is the Bible that's saying this. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We've already seen that there's an inseparable tie between loving God and keeping his commands. And here John states it directly. This is love for God, to keep his commands. Now John takes us up to a higher level. He tells us, and his commands are not burdensome. Did you hear that? Did you see that as you're reading along? There's a change in perspective here that John very subtly presents to us. The person who loves God begins to view his commands as not being a burden. Why is that? Most people love freedom, not following someone else's commands. Why are God's commands not burdensome? The answer is that we discover that God loves us. And God's rules for the people he loves are not arbitrary. They are guidelines designed to keep us in the center of his loving direction. They are commands that are tied to overcoming the world and its obstacles. Let that sink in for a minute. God's commands are tied to instructions for overcoming the challenges of this world. What is the opposite of that? It's being overcome by the world. 
which is the last thing that God wants for me. It's the last thing that God wants for you. He recognizes that we live in a broken world where there are many dangers and many obstacles and many challenges and many who will even oppose you for your faith. And what God longs for you to do is to be an overcomer who overcomes all the challenges that are out there. And the challenges that face us are different for everyone. For one, it's an addiction. For another, it's a sickness. For, for another, it's a, it's a battle that goes on at work or within the family. And God wants you to be an overcomer of all these things. But ultimately, God wants us to overcome all of the world and all of its challenges. And we discover what that feels like when we finally get to the end and he welcomes us into his presence and into his eternal kingdom. We all become overcomers at that moment. And all the other challenges are laid down and they are defeated by his strength. But all through life, there will be battles that you face. And out of love, he is presenting the pathway for overcoming every obstacle that can get thrown up before you. So the new perspective is that God's commands are not seen as burdensome. The more that you love God and experience his love for you, the more we naturally want to be in alignment with his commands for us. So the answer is wrapped up in a deeper understanding of God's love. God isn't in the business of orchestrating arbitrary or unfair commands for us. His commands are designed to keep us from being overcome by the world. Instead, he longs for us to overcome the world and the destructive forces within it so his commands assist us and lead us toward overcoming everything. Now, in the midst of these verses, John makes three statements about overcoming the world. One, every person born of God overcomes the world. So, if you have been born again by his spirit, you place your trust and your faith in Jesus as the chosen one of God, the very son of God, the Christ, you are born of God. It's not a feeling. It's a designation that God gives to you as a result of your faith in what he has done through Jesus. The second statement is, faith is the victory that has overcome the world. So trusting in him, placing our trust in God and in Jesus is the pathway to that victory. And third, only people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God overcome the world. There is an exclusive pathway. He allows us to see what this is. It's open to everyone who will choose it, but there's a pathway that we must go down, and that is the pathway of believing that Jesus is the Son of God, the unique Son of God. Why does John speak of overcoming the world? We have to interpret the use of this concept, the world, according to context. There is the world as God created it, and God loves this world and loves all his people. John 3.16 tells us that. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. But the Bible also speaks of the world in a way in which we come to see that it is broken. In this sense, the world and its systems are in, a, are in rebellion against God. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, he says, though the world was made by him, Jesus, it didn't recognize him. In John chapter 15, again, in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples not to be surprised if the world hates them because it hated him first. By the way, that happens, doesn't it, sometimes? You let it leak out that you're a follower of Jesus. 
or there's some policy that goes on somewhere in some aspect of your life and you stand up all of a sudden and say, I can't go along with that. Why not? I'm a follower of Jesus. This, this runs totally against it, what I believe. You will be attacked for that. Jesus lets us know that that is a part of Christian life. He gives you the strength to bear up under it, but he doesn't take away every obstacle that comes. In John chapter 12, verse 31 Jesus speaks of the prince of this world who usurps God's place. That's the evil one. So the Bible does present this whole story of what God has done, including bringing us into the world until the end of time as not only a good story, but a story where there is conflict in the midst of it because there's a sworn enemy of God who at one time was one of the angels who rebelled against God in heaven and was cast out forever and he tries to warp our thinking and to lead us away from God. The book of Revelation talks about how at the final end of things, that battle will finally be over and there'll be no more sadness, no more death, no more fear that comes. And so, despite all these things, God never stops loving the world or the people in the world. Jesus was sent to redeem the world despite its brokenness and its people. And all who come to Jesus find rest in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of the obstacles, despite this world's broken systems. When I was reading those words, it sounded remarkably like uh, something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 in the Gospels. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here I hear John echoing those same words. The commands of God are not burdensome. They're actually light, because they lead you into a pathway that is good. So here's the big idea for this morning. The love of God that we find through faith in Jesus is the force that aligns us with God's desires and that overcomes the world. You are not united to just some feeling of love that comes and goes. The love of God is the force that overcomes the world. Why does this matter? Let me present two ways to you why this matters. First, it aligns us with the core belief of Christian faith. All right, you're thinking, what is that? That Jesus is both the Son of God and the Christ. That is the core conviction of all of historic Christianity. Not too long ago, I heard a man say to me, I really like Jesus and I want to know Jesus. It's just this business of Jesus being the Christ and the only way of God. That's where I get uncomfortable. Can't we just focus on Jesus and, and leave behind this Christ or Messiah stuff? The answer is no. Because at the moment we do that, we have a different Jesus. It's, it's not the Jesus who came and who suffered for you. It's not the Jesus who is the greatest force of God's love that we've ever known that's a Jesus of our invention that we would be left with if you strip that away. So we don't have the right to just believe whatever we want to. Of course, we do in this country, but as Christians, we don't. Because that would be a huge departure from historic Christian faith. It would certainly be a departure of the faith that Peter and John and the other apostles died for. So this aligns us with the core belief of Christian faith. Here's the second way that this matters. This links the two great ingredients of New Testament Christianity. What are they? Faith 
and love. Faith without love is meaningless. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 that even a faith that can move mountains, if it is not accompanied by love, is like a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. In other words, just a lot of noise. So faith alone without love is not the answer. And love without faith is powerless. We talked a few weeks ago how, about how this is not just any old love. The New Testament writers use the concept of God's agape love, a love from on high or a lofty love that comes from outside of ourselves that God himself replenishes as often as we give it away. The love that he gives is always comfortable with faith and truth. This is the love that flows from God through Jesus to us. Remember a few weeks ago when uh, I referenced the song uh, that Steve Winwood wrote, A Higher Love, Bring Me a Higher Love. Our world longs for and cries out for a higher love than we commonly see. And even our pop songs every once in a while speak of that truth that is buried in the human heart. We long for a love that is from outside of ourselves. And John the Apostle is telling us how God has supplied that love for us in Jesus. The more we draw near to Jesus, the more he gives us the love that overcomes every obstacle in this world. This is the love that can change hearts that were once hardened or angry toward God. This is the love that can ignite a person who has never ever had a history of knowing God or being a part of a Christian movement to all of a sudden being flooded with that sense of love and saying, I know why I'm here right now. And this is what I've been looking for for so long. And rather than beating themselves up for the past, they dive into the new because this experience is so overwhelming. This is the love that fills the heart of a person who is in the middle of the biggest battle of their lives right now, no matter what it is, who says, I can hold on because Jesus holds on to me. Knowing that ultimately what we long for or to hear those words from Jesus himself when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Enter into my love forevermore. The love of God that we find through faith in Jesus is the force that aligns us with God's desires and that overcomes the world. I wonder if you would pray this prayer with me that's going to flash up on the screen behind me. It's a prayer that flows from what we've just been discovering and the desire to have this love. Lord, fill my heart with the highest kind of love. Fill me with the love we find in Jesus. Let love shaped by faith rule in my life. Let it flow through me to other Christians. Let it flow through me to my neighbors. Let it shape the way I talk. Let it align my heart with your heart. Amen.